Policy Beyond Borders. Welcome to Policy Beyond Borders, a podcast series on geopolitics and international relations by Center for Public Policy Research, CPPR, where we bring to you podcasts with insightful discussions and newer perspectives on a wide range of topics of contemporary relevance with experts to discuss, deconstruct, and advocate for things that matter. Podcast episodes of Policy Beyond Borders by CPPR are on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and on cppr.in. Hello everyone, this is Neelima, Associate Research from Center for Public Policy Research. This is our third episode of Policy Beyond Borders and in this edition we are delving into the analysis of presidential election of Maldives which has great geopolitical implications in international relations. When the world is busy discussing G20 and its outcomes, here we bring to you this important issue in which India's stake couldn't be missed. Tune in and let's get started. The Archipelago Nation went for historic polls on 9th September 2023 with eight candidates contesting for election. The main political parties in the Maldives are the Maldivian Democratic Party, which was the ruling party and supports democracy, human rights and closer ties with India, the Progressive Party of Maldives, which is the main opposition party and favors closer relations with China, the People's National Congress, which is split the group from the PPM and supports former President Abdullah Yami, the Jumuri Party, which advocates for economic development, social welfare and constitutional reforms, and the Democrats, which is a newly formed party that claims to represent the middle ground between India and the PPM. The political landscape of Maldives is also greatly by external factors such as geopolitics of the Indian Ocean, where both India and China have a stake in the outcome of the election. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Mimra Gahur, an independent Maldivian political analyst. Uh, he's experienced in foreign policy analysis, governance, anti-corruption, and English uh, speech writing and editing. Most recently, he worked as a lead speech writer to the President of the General Assembly at the United Nations headquarters in New York. Welcome to Policy Beyond Borders, Mr. Nindra. Thank you very much, and thank you for hosting me. So looking at the situation where no candidate has achieved a majority of 50% plus votes in the initial round of the election on September 9th, the election has now proceeded to a runoff uh, scheduled for September 30th. This was also highlighted uh, by you in your article uh, in Diplomat title, Maldives Presidential Election is a Multi-Host Race. Following the tallying of votes, during which a total of 2,25,486 votes were cast, Muizu emerged as a front-runner with 1,1635 votes, equivalent to 46.06% of the total. In contrast, President Ibrahim Saleh, despite his recent generous initiatives during his time in power, received only 86,161 votes, which is equal to 39.05% of the vote. In the third position is Ilyas Labib, uh, acting as a proxy candidate for Mohammed Nasheed with 7.18% uh, of votes, according to the information provided by the Election Commission. So as a political analyst, uh, what is your assessment of the potential outcome of the runoff election, which is scheduled for September 30th? I think that at this point in time, uh, the opposition candidate is the front runner and he 
uh, has reason to be cautiously optimistic. Uh, uh, I, I think it took a lot of analysts by surprise as well, uh, because uh, realistically, um, the government had they had been campaigning on the momentum of winning this uh, election in one round. That turned out not to be the case, and I think even earlier people had predicted that, despite that campaign rhetoric, that that was very unlikely to materialize because of the sheer number of candidates. Uh, but the smart money, quote unquote, thus far had always been on President Soli, who taken the plurality vote, and Mohammed Muiz uh, maybe coming in second. Um, so this is, definitely comes as a surprise to the government. Uh, and it definitely puts them in a worse footing uh, than the opposition in the run-up to uh, September 30th. Now, I, I think a big part of this uh, has to do with the rift between former President Nasheed uh, and President Solihu, because the Democrats, as you mentioned, they are essentially a breakaway faction of the MDP. They broke off after uh, Mohamed Nasheed unsuccessfully uh, contested against Solihu and the MDP primary. Um, and rather than reconciling, they have maintained their differences. And if you look at uh, the numbers uh, of the votes cast for Ilyas Labib, they are numerically commensurate with the amount of votes that uh, Mohamed Nasheed received in, in the MDP primary, which is around uh, 15,000. So I think had uh, the MDP had stood firm and the, the, they hadn't become factionalized, that 39, the, the, that 7% would have gone to President Solihu in the first round. Um, I Partly, I also think it's a miscalculation by the government in the run up to the election because I, uh, one of uh, the Speaker Mohammed Nasheed's uh, grievances against the government is that there their reliance on a coalition, uh, the coalition that brought them into uh, power in 2018. Um, I think by favoring that coalition over maintaining unity within the MDP party, uh, that has cost the government a lot of votes. Um, it's also, uh, for better or for worse, I think the opposition's campaign uh, has been quite effective. Uh, they have uh, been campaigning on an India Out platform, as you have mentioned, and I don't think that the government PR machinery has been particularly effective in countering that, um, because for one thing, I think they neglect to mention enough that Yami himself actually maintained an India First foreign policy. Um, and uh, Dr. Mohammed Muiz, uh, the PNC candidate, uh, he has he is also committed to an India first foreign policy. I, I don't think that will change. And uh, I, I, I think a lot of that campaign is uh, insincere and uh, essentially to rile up uh, nationalist public sentiment. Uh, and it seems to have worked in the opposition's favor and the government has not done a particularly effective job of countering that rhetoric. Um, uh, another point that I, I think it's important to highlight is uh, uh, you mentioned the Jumhuri party. They received essentially less than three, they received about 2.5% of the vote share this time, which is 
uh, historically an extremely low showing for Ghassan Ibrahim, who was once a, a major political figure in his own right. Uh, in the 2013 elections, in the first round, he managed to garner 20% uh, around that much, and he was neck and neck with Yamin uh, in terms of being able to proceed to the second round. And he has historically been a very powerful kingmaker in our, in our politics. Uh, and, and that's why the government maintained a coalition with the JP up until this point. Uh, that does not seem to be the case anymore. It seems that Muhammad Nasheed with his Democrats are much more in, in the kingmaker position um, because without their vote, it's extremely unlikely that uh, Ibrahim Mohamed Salih can succeed in the second round. Um, and even having said that, the government's position is actually quite dangerous because uh, Mohamed Muizu, he was able to secure 46% of the vote. He does not necessarily need all of the Democrats' votes to get him past that 50% uh, plus uh, one voter threshold to be able to secure the presidency. So uh, I, I, I think he has a broader selection of people that he can make a coalition uh, if he so chooses to, if he so chooses to, whereas the government definitely needs uh, the Democrats to uh, align with them. And thus far, the indication is that that may not necessarily be the case. Uh, I, I, I think the split between Ibrahim Salihu and Mohammed Nasheed is quite strong. Um, it has political elements in it. It has personal elements in it. Um, and to be fair, I, I also don't think this election is entirely being decided by foreign policy alone. Um, this government was elected on a very strong mandate of uh, anti-corruption, and there's a lot of domestic uh, issues that they have not perhaps done the best job in terms of delivering on, um, because Yamin's presidency was extremely scandal-ridden. Um, I, I don't know if you recall the MNPRC corruption scandal uh, in his administration where leases to islands were done through an illicit and extremely uh, unethical bidding process and, and it was used to essentially launder money. Um, and and uh, Solio's administration was very much elected uh, as part of a backlash to that politics of corruption as well as to the kind of uh, autocracy and uh, that characterized Yamin's regime, and as well as the turmoil that characterized his regime. Um, Solio has done better in terms of not uh, imprisoning all of his political opponents. This is a competitive election, and I, I, I do think that that remains a milestone for our democracy. But at the same time, the Solio administration has also been plagued by a lot of corruption scandals, including. Uh, a corruption scandal relating to uh, the procurement of ventilators uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, and that's cost him a lot of votes. Um, and I, I, I think uh, a combination of him not being able to deliver on his initial pledges, uh, again to reiterate, one of which was zero tolerance to corruption, as well as a very effective uh, opposition anti-campaign, uh, has worked in uh, the opposition's favor. Uh, that being said, uh, while the opposition does remain in a strong, stronger position, and Muizu is the front runner in the elections now, uh, uh, there's still a three-week window uh, 
before the next elect the, the second round will take place and i in th in politics three weeks is a, a very long time uh, and we will see whether the government ha will learn from the mistakes that they made uh, leading up to the campaign uh, which side how the political spectrum is aligned in in, in the lead up to the election and um, I, I think it will be a closer uh, race than what it was perhaps in the first round, uh, but it, it's very difficult to predict. Thank you so much. You, as a political analyst, you have highlighted an important uh, like part of this election, that is the split of the MDP has actually caused them a lot of votes and also this election is not entirely decided by the foreign policy alone, but also the domestic issues of the Maldives as well. So coming to our next question, that is, even though Ibrahim Saleh has done major improvements, as you have mentioned, he, his government has poor record on governance in terms of corruption and religious violence in island nations, as you have mentioned in the procurement of uh, ventilators during the COVID-19, the corruption case. So even during the first round, uh, he has only gained 39.05 percentage, which we have discussed earlier, compared to Muizu from Yamin's party. So, and Muizu's uh, one of the main agenda was like limiting India's presence in Maldives, which is like expelling a small group of Indian military personnel stationed in the archipelago. So, considering all this, uh, does the initial result mean that the people of Maldives actually want to side against India? I mean, uh, I want to highlight the people's opinion on this. And also, I would like to know, will this be a future challenge for India in Maldives? Uh, because in several articles authored by you have also mentioned the concerns regarding the Maldives election, where you have highlighted the challenge of Maldives will be in skillfully managing its relationship with both India and China. So looking ahead, on the other part, uh, is it expected that Maldives will hold up, uh, will uphold a di diplomatic position when engaging with India and China, or could the nation potentially align more closely with one of these countries depending upon the election outcome? Um, for one thing, I would take uh, campaign rhetoric with a, a grain of salt. Uh, so even while the PPM, they are campaigning on an India out campaign, um, I, my intuition, this is my own personal intuition, is that they will temper that rhetoric. Uh, because looking back at the Yamin administration, uh, which would be uh, where the, uh, the example that we can draw data from, he, as I mentioned earlier, he maintained an India first foreign policy. Not only that, he implored our media not to use overly uh, inflammatory language towards India. And he tried to maintain a, a good relationship with India uh, as evidenced by the fact that India was uh, the first country uh, to which he took an official visit. And during the 2014 water crisis, when we had uh, water cut off, uh, sorry, we had a technical issue with, 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 our, uh, with our ability to access water in the, in the capital, uh, he certainly had no qualms about uh, receiving assistance and aid from India to, to manage that crisis. It was later on in his term, uh, as his political footing became more unstable, um, and as India was criticizing uh, him for imprisoning uh, certain political opponents, uh, that he started to take a more nationalist uh, stance. And I, I think that was to bolster his domestic standing. 
Um, keep in mind that the Dornier aircraft that the PPM, PNC, they're complaining about now, they were initially leased to the Maldives under his administration. The dockyard in Uturu Tilafalu, um, they are, it's also proceeding uh, under uh, defense agreements made bilaterally between India and Maldives under the Yamin administration. And similarly, even with the, to, to take the converse parallel, when the MDP government, they were in the opposition, uh, they made a lot of remarks about how the Maldives is too dependent on China, how we have uh, our debt obligation to China is soaring and that China will lead us to debt traps. But upon assuming office, they have actually maintained fairly robust commercial relations with China. China is up, still upgrading our international airport uh, in Valana, in um, Hulule. Uh, they are proceeding with building housing units in Hulumale. They renovated our foreign ministry building. Uh, and uh, we have ongoing uh, projects with China. We receive Chinese officials and we there's a lot of uh, bilateral visits between the two countries. So uh, I, I sometimes think that this dichotomy uh, that the Maldives is always wavering between India and China is too stark. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of domestic considerations, uh, uh, domestic political drivers that get left aside in the discourse. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I, I think a lot of the backlash towards the government has more to do with their failure to effectively address corruption and uh, maintaining an unpopular coalition and also uh, the factionalism within the NDP uh, than it does specifically with India. Uh, having said that, I, I, I do believe that there is a, uh, a public sentiment that India is perhaps too overbearing on our, on our politics. I think they're too identified with a particular political party, the MDP. Um, and and it, it, I think it creates this, at least a, a narrative that the MDP is subservient, subservient to India. And by extension, since this is an MDP-led government, that the government is subservient to India. And the government has not really uh, done enough to counter that narrative. Now, um, if Muisu were to be elected on, especially if it's on the uh, back of an India out campaign, I, I think that will hurt relations in the short term. Um, I, I think they will make an effort to temper and be more diplomatic with that rhetoric once they have, or if they actually are able to secure office. Um, uh, but uh, I, I believe that their comments in the lead up to the election will not have been received well by India. And I think that will create a lot of friction and bilateral ties. And uh, I, I think, uh, if they were elected, the responsible thing to do would be to uh, tone down that rhetoric uh, a bit. Um, in terms of an alignment with China, um, I, I again, I, I do believe that both Moise and Soli are actually capable of keeping a more uh, diplomatic or middle ground between the two countries than often seems to be the case. Uh, but one thing that I think he would do differently is enter into a free trade agreement with China because uh, simply by inference, because when Yamin was president, he uh, 
attempted to enter into a free trade agreement with China. And the way that he proceeded with that agreement was actually quite strange. Um, he essentially had it forced through parliament without a quorum, without any uh, proper legislative discretion or scrutiny. And he managed to pass it, but he never ratified it. And the current administration has thus far been content to let it lie unratified. Uh, if the PNC government comes to power, I think they might be more amenable to signing that free trade agreement. And uh, I, I do think that would give China more commercial leverage over the Maldives. Uh, but uh, we'll just... Uh, have to see how it plays out. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so if Moizu comes to power in short term, it is going to hurt relations with India. And also in terms of alignment with China, a free trade agreement is actually possible, right? So uh, so right now, till now, we have discussed uh, foreign policy challenges, etc. So when coming to domestic challenges that Maldives face, like such as youth employment and development concerns and the corruption, etc. So do you see foresee any potential elevation of these issues in the near future? And which of the candidates or political parties currently competing in the election do you believe possess the greater capability to effectively address the domestic challenges of Maldives? To be honest, I'm quite disappointed in all the candidates uh, with regard to that question. So I, I, I believe that both Moise and uh, uh, President Solihu are intelligent people who are capable of doing uh, or advocating for responsible policies. But on the campaign trail, I think they have both given into highly populist policies, which I, I don't think this uh, country is in an economic uh, uh, a footing to really be. Like, I, I don't think we're in a position where we'd be able to bear that burden. Because right now, the Maldives is in an extremely economically precarious situation. We, COVID def, uh, took a toll in our, on our economy. Uh, we've recovered somewhat, uh, thanks partly to the rebound in our tourism sector. Uh, but the level of debt that the country has accrued is actually quite high. Uh, I, I can't recall the exact figures off the top of my head, but our our debt servicing uh, is extremely high right now. And according to World Bank reports, by 2026, we our, our debt repayment obligations cumulatively will amount to 1 billion US dollars, which is about one fifth of our current GDP, which is approximately about $5 billion. And we have seen uh, the kind of toll and spillover effects that a debt crisis can have on our neighbors. We've seen it in Sri Lanka. We've seen it in Pakistan. Uh, and the Maldives, though, we've, uh, we haven't uh, really been plunged into that kind of crisis. Just on, on a number of metrics, we're actually a much more vulnerable country because we're extremely vulnerable to climate shocks. Our economy is extremely dependent uh, on the tourism industry. Uh, any shocks to the global air travel industry or a decline in tourism demand really hurts our economy. And uh, thus far, the government's approach to this has been uh, mixed. Um, they've, they've done some strides that have been uh, praised by international experts, such as at the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, for instance, they raised the 
inputs and services tax back in Janu January to raise more government uh, revenue. Uh, but it, uh, but that's also been offset by a number of measures that they've implemented uh, subsequently, uh, because it, it is a bit of a contradiction to raise the GST and then announce that we're going to also raise uh, salaries and wages for certain professionals. Uh, and in the lead up to the election, uh, both candidates have been making claims that are essentially not well planned out and almost absurd uh, and, and very politically expedient and, and more populist than they are uh, technically sound. For instance, the government recently announced that they will increase the public sector salary by 40% should they uh, come to power. Uh, this really does not match with the rhetoric that they use to justify the GST increases. Uh, how can we be in such a precarious economic situation where we need to tighten our belts and do things that are economically responsible? And at the same time, we have all these extravagant funds to dispense uh, in return for uh, your political support. And uh, Dr. Moise has also just expanded on the government's pledges. Um, like for instance, they recently announced a uh, Binveria or landowner scheme where they have provided uh, applicants who are eligible for land in the greater Mali region uh, with essentially real estate, some, a lot of which even uh, needs to be reclaimed. Um, but uh, people still need capital to be able to build that uh, real estate. And Moise has said he's, he's going to set up a fund and he's also going to uh, essentially implement populist measures uh, that aren't necessarily economically sound. Um, and we also have a, a number of structural problems with our economy that successive governments have refused to deal with. Uh, so a, a big reason that we have such a high debt obligation is because uh, of the amount of state-owned enterprises in the Maldives. A big share of our economy is uh, essentially dependent on state-owned enterprises, all of which come with sovereign guarantees for their uh, projects or for any loan that they take out. And it and and successive. Uh, delegations from IMF, the World Bank, and reports by them have warned us that the SOEs sector in the Maldives is far too bloated. Um, but uh, there's not been much will to cut it down. In fact, uh, part of the problem is that uh, they're used as a political tool, not just by this government, but by previous governments as well, and probably by future governments as well. Um, essentially, the state-owned enterprises, which uh, the technical justification for them being there is that they are able to provide services that the private sector cannot provide, such as utilities, uh, services, uh, waste collection, uh, electricity, and they're supposed to provide technical services. That's the justification for them. Uh, but so far, when we see the kinds of appointments that are made to these SOEs, they're essentially political appointments. Uh, if you are aligned with the government, they will give you well-paid uh, sinecure positions in state-owned enterprises. And in return for that, they expect you to 
be involved in party activities, um, make up numbers uh, for rallies uh, in the lead up to both the MDP primaries and the general election. We saw um, staffed by SOEs uh, such as Fenaka um, take part in like putting up banners in for uh, for the MDP. And all of this just adds to bloat and it crowds out the private sector and it uh, adds to our fiscal worries. Therefore, uh, I, I am quite disappointed across the spectrum in terms of how they're approaching debt, how much seriousness they give it. And I don't personally have any uh, confidence uh, that 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 situation is going to change anytime soon. I'm, uh, uh, having said that, I, I also do believe that uh, any government that comes to power will have to look at uh, the numbers, uh, including the most especially the looming one billion dollar uh, US dollar debt repayment that we need to make in 2026, and it's going to strike them with some alarm um, because just by looking at neighboring Sri Lanka. Um, if the country goes into political turmoil uh, simply because of an economic crisis, there's no guarantee that they'll actually be able to stay in power uh, up until the next elections in 2028. So regardless of who comes to power, Muiz uh, Solihu, I am hoping that they will uh, look at the numbers with some trepidation, uh, with uh, some sense of uh, caution, and implement more fiscally responsible and prudent measures. Thank you so much for that insightful comment. Uh, so uh, we, let's hope that uh, the, whoever comes to power will address these issues carefully and in a well manner. So thank you, Mr. Mimbra, for such an engaging conversation. We have covered a lot of important aspects from a Maldivian perspective regarding the election, including the foreign policy challenges that is balancing uh, between India and China and other domestic issues which Maldives will be facing and in the future. So with that, we have come to the end of this episode. Uh, get ready for another episode that will really make you think, diving into strategically and geopolitically relevant issue across the globe. Until then, it's me, Nilima, signing off. Listen to our podcast series, Policy Beyond Borders by CPPR on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and also on the CPPR website, www.cppr.in.